I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Birth Cafe podcast. It's your host, Angel Coleman, and I am here again with another fantastic guest. And this guest is especially special because she's actually one of the mentors for uh, the Birth Worker membership and uh, the Birth Worker Academy that I was a part of. Uh, I loved her so much. I just had to have her on the podcast today. And before we get into our introduction, the topic that we're going to discuss today is actually pretty near and dear to my heart because this is something that I personally experienced with baby number five. And it was pretty hard um, during my pregnancy to kind of go through this. And there wasn't a lot of research that I could find. So I have Amanda here um, and she's going to go through some of the research on this topic. And Amanda, welcome to the Birth Cafe podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Um, good to see you again and answer your questions again. Um, not not entirely new for me, obviously. Always had good questions for me and the uh, the training program and everything. So I'm super excited to be here. Um, my name is Amanda Hopkins. I am a pharmacist by trade, but um, somebody who got really, really interested in birth and am now um, putting a little bit more work into developing a business surrounding birth education um, and and just trying to get more people um, educated on the topics uh, that, that tend to come up in a lot of appointments, whether that's moms or birth workers alike. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here and excited to talk to you about um, IUGR and, and SGA. Awesome. Awesome. And I don't know if anyone has told you, I'm pretty sure I told you this, but you look like the lead actress in Game of no, House of Dragon. <laughs> I it's funny because I think you you had mentioned that to me before and I, I have not watched that show yet. I will eventually, but um, I had to like go Google and I don't, I don't entirely disagree with you. I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, she's a really, she's a good actress and she does amazing. So yeah, go Go look at it. it, and the birth scenes are going to make you cringe. I, I will say that. So. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a problem. You know how it is with the media, so. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, so how did you get into the birth world? Like, what piqued your interest? Sure, so so I've always been um, somebody who kind of throughout my career, whether it was pharmacy or before I worked in a lab before that, I've always kind of had, um, obviously, a background in medical research and and reading research, interpreting research, regardless of whether that was school or my actual career. Um, but I've always had like kind of an interest in women's health and um, fertility, especially. Um, 
but you know i would say that this obviously was like compounded infinitely by my own births um i had two girls um ages two and a half and eight months now and um, their births could not have been more different and that was almost entirely because of things that i did differently from one pregnancy to the other um you know i had one very stereotypical um uh, pregnancy with a ob practice where cascade of interventions was more or less coerced upon me <laughs> at my 36 37 38 week appointments ending in an induction with all of the interventions and everything else that i did not want um and and then my my birth with my second daughter with a midwife who was very hands-off and very um, accepting of you know um, either exchanging certain things or uh, foregoing certain testing or whatever um, which ended in a, a very beautiful unmedicated birth that was exactly what i wanted i delivered on hands and knees i caught my own baby they let me you know kind of do whatever i wanted there was no like no, nothing impressed upon me and through kind of my own research through my pregnancy um kind of realized that unless you look into it yourself or you're you have somebody who's helping you do that um you're not going to get this information probably from your ob or even from your midwife in a lot of cases um, depending on you know their practice style and everything like that um so i really i really wanted to be able to help people because I realize that you know medical research is really tough. Um, it's hard to read studies. It's hard to find stuff. It's hard to compile that data. Um, so I really wanted to be able to help people do that, and that's what I'm trying to put into practice now. Yeah, and you have a, a an amazing uh, story of an unmedicated hospital birth, right. which you had unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it can be done. And you're a perfect example of that. And uh, we're going to put Amanda's uh, Instagram in the show notes so you guys can take a look at her Instagram. But she actually has a story in her Instagram uh, highlights. Uh, so you guys can take a look at how her birth story went. But yeah, like how you got that unmedicated birth is truly awesome and amazing. And just a great example that it can be done. It does take a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, a lot of preparation on my end for sure. It was like a yeah. pretty much like a from A to Z, mm -hmm. from day one type of conversation with my um, practitioner and like just making sure that she was entirely on board with everything from the start. And mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's a bit of luck involved, which we never know how birth is going to go, obviously, but, um, you know, planning the best that we could for outcomes and you know, everything kind of fell into place and it worked out perfectly. So I couldn't be more happy with the outcome of that, obviously. Right. Yeah. And when we're talking, we we're going to talk a little bit more about SGA, but my my fifth baby, uh, she was the one who was a suspected SGA baby. Um, she, ended up, she ended up not being SGA, but uh, she also was a unmedicated uh, hospital birth as well. Um, so that was something I was pretty proud of and that's, that's awesome. what I wanted. And <laughs> Right. It's a big thing when you accomplish that just yeah. because it's so rare. I mean, I can't even tell you how many people that I interacted with through the course of my pregnancy or through the course of my care that basically poo-pooed it or said it's not going to happen mm -hmm. or nobody ever does that. And even during my course of my 
second hospital birth, which ended up being unmedicated. Uh, you know, so many nurses said to me like, wow, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it really has just an entirely different feel and has like the capability to really change people's minds about what birth should look like. So yes. it's important for them to see that for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and that in my own experience too, like the, the nurses and the doctors were just like, oh my goodness, like you did yeah. amazing. Like that is so right. So great. And I was I was definitely the talk of the <laughs> Yeah, I had like people just popping in to my room after I delivered to be like, Wow, so exciting. Know, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I know for me, it was just like not only did I do an unmedicated birth, I delivered my baby in a shower and there was no no doctor, no nurse. My doula caught her because she I just Amazing. her so fast. So yep. it, it was happens really like that. Like, how did you do it's Amazing what happens when they leave you alone, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you had mentioned um how difficult like medical research can be. Um so Can you talk a little bit briefly about how to decipher good research versus not so great research, especially since you you hear so many statistics and stats thrown around and all that good stuff. (laughs) And it's really tough because, I mean, in this, I feel like in social media, like um, you see people throw around statistics all the time and half the time, like I can't, I couldn't even, I'm a pretty good Googler and like I can't a lot of times find where they're getting that source from. so like i think it's a bit of like a game of telephone where like somebody publishes a statistic and then like a paper probably cites it and then that paper gets turned into like an editorial and the editorial gets cited by like these baby blogs and then instagrammers read the baby blogs and then they're publishing the statistics so there's a bit of like maybe not the full message coming through i feel like when a lot of people cite statistics um personally like one of my pet peeves is like, if you're not telling me where it's coming from, I pretty much like don't really believe it. Um, unless you're just saying like it's an estimation, right? Or in my experience. Um, and I think that that's fair, right? Because I do think that experience is worthwhile and, and professional opinion is worthwhile. But if you're trying to quote a statistic, it should be like saying where it's coming from. <laughs> um, as far as like research goes, like if you're going to read actual like studies, you're going to read you know, scholarly articles, medical journals, those kind of things, which is ideally where, if you're going to be looking for those kind of things, where that information would be coming from. Um, And I'll talk about why I say ideally, because there's some gray area there too that I want to take into account. But you always want to consider what the source is, right? Like, is this, uh, who's writing this article? Um, what is their motive for publishing this? Like, are they being financially compensated by somebody? Uh, is the journal funded by somebody? And and like, there is no such thing as unbiased research, right? So I want to put that out there, first of all. Like, it's not ever going to be 100% pure, right? Everybody always has a motive, just like you and I have a motive of being on here to, at some point, there should be some financial back end of that comes better from this right for me it promotes my business for you it promotes your business the same thing and researchers are the same right they're hoping to get more money for their research or they're hoping to get a better position at their university or become a tenured professor or something like that um as far as like looking at those studies ideally like for me as a researcher when i see papers that are 
um, what's called blinded or double blinded, meaning that the, the participants don't know what part of a group they're in. Um, if there's like a placebo group or a control group where they're not receiving whatever the intervention is, um, if the paper when it's published is peer reviewed, like those are all, to me, those are all pluses, right? Um, these things are all a lot of times less common in maternity, pregnancy, postpartum type research, right? Because you know you're pregnant. <laughs> you know whether or not they're inducing you, right? Like it's not like we can't, <laughs> you can't do a blinded study on that. Um, they can be randomized where the people are randomly put into a group, but it's very hard to do blinded study work for this. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, a lot of studies are also retrospective where they look back at cases that have happened and look how they were managed, what their statistics were. It's really hard when you do re um, retrospective studies though because they have to be really tightly controlled as far as like who you pick, right? So you're not purposely picking one person to go to this group because it has the outcome that you want. So there's definitely some potential for bias there as well. Um, you want to make sure that you're looking at reputable sources versus what I would consider not reputable, and that's obviously an opinion, right? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think that there's any like definitive like this is reputable and this is not. A lot of that is like your opinion. So for me, <clears throat> I'm I'm I like to look at information from big universities, things like Mayo Clinic or ACOG or things like that, as um, when I'm initially gathering data and I know that there's like a lot of maybe some negative hard feelings about what ACOG has to say or at the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology they may have you may have some negative feelings about <laughs> guidelines that they put out or how they do business or how they um, you know guidelines and that kind of thing um, I don't disagree with that but um, keeping in mind that that's how the majority of clinicians are going to be practicing I think it's important to have that as kind of a groundwork when you're looking at research. Um, also understanding the difference between primary research and third party reviews or articles, which is kind of what I was talking about. Like, are we looking at the actual research study or are we looking at uh, somebody who looked at some studies and then wrote a blog post about it? Um, not that there is not value in that because that could be a really experienced person who has 25 years of practicing um, or 25 years of delivering babies, or I should say catching babies. Um, but are they, <clears throat> again, are they citing their source? Are they telling you where they got this information? Are they speaking in generalities? Are they um, giving you like finite data? Or um, what are their qualifications? And it doesn't have to be letters behind their name, right? Like some of the best midwives are unlicensed midwives that have a lot of years of experience or birth keepers who are, you know, again, unlicensed, they don't even call themselves a midwife, midwife. they might have more experience and, and better information. Um, but looking at that kind of information, like does that person, and also like does that person align with what you're looking for as well? Um, and then kind of, I already kind of touched on this a little bit, but looking at um, studies is important, but I also think that taking experience into account is important as well. So making sure that you you notice that not everything is going to be studied, right? Um, we know for a fact that there's not a ton of, especially U.S. home birth related studies, um, except if they're trying to say that it's not a good idea. <laughs> um, 
and it's usually done by an obstetrician, right? <laughs> but the thing to kind of keep in mind with that is, you know, that's a financial motive, right? Like an obstetrician has a financial motive to keep you in an obstetrician's office versus saying, yeah, home birth is a good idea, which you would never go to them unless it's an emergency then. So I, I think that the biggest thing for me about determining whether or not research is good is kind of assessing the bias level and knowing what at baseline, how I feel about the research before I go in and read it. <laughs> and then kind of taking the information from it and saying like, how does it really apply to what I'm looking at? So that's kind of how my process of how I go through things to start with. Well, that's that's so valu valuable. And I love how you mentioned biases because you're right. We all have them. And so do the papers. So do these big organizations. We, they all have biases. They all want to have an intent for these things. And it's important to understand the funding part as well. I mean, when you follow the money, you find a lot of interesting things. Right. Um, and you you kind of learn a little bit more about why this study was created. Also, I actually wonder too, do you think that it's hard to find really good research articles because many times you can't actually study pregnant women? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, It's a that's a very valid point. So like there's a lot of... And, and obviously, like, medical research, um, if you look, like, way back, like, they were doing whatever they wanted. There was no <laughs> rules. Um, they were, like, studying children, studying pregnant women, like, yeah. giving drugs to people. Right. They shouldn't have been, probably. Um, there's a lot of, like, rules about, like, what's ethical in mm -hmm. medical studies now, um, or research studies, I should say. But, and yes, a lot of times, like if you're talking about interventions, like it's not necessarily ethical if you know the outcome is going to be bad right. to put people in a group to say, we know the outcome is going to be bad for these people. Mm -hmm. Like we're just not going to do it, even though we have another option. Yeah. So, yeah, like you're 100 percent right. A lot of times the, the research won't really be there in the way that you want it to be because of that reason as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like ethical problems. Yeah. And I, I feel like you might bring this up later, too. but. Uh, I know, like, in some of the Q&As that you've had, you've also mentioned that some of the research studies are, like, only specifically picking, like, really healthy people or, you know, only moms that right. have severe, you know, diseases right. or problems and things like that. And I feel like that is something, too, to really keep in mind, right? Because you're just like, right. well, does this really apply to me since yeah. I've got this problem? Or does it really apply to me because I'm so healthy? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Every most, most research studies, when I say most, probably like 95 plus percent of research is going to is going to have like a subset of rules of who was included and who's not included. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the people who are purposely excluded from a trial is almost more telling than the people who are included. Right, like you said, like, are you purposely looking at people who are really sick? Are you purposely looking at only people who are really healthy? Are you purposely only looking at first time moms? Are you only looking at white people? Are you mm -hmm. only looking at anything? It doesn't matter what the group is. Like, are you only looking at one specific subset? Um, and then <clears throat> when you talk about the practical application of that, how do you or your client or whoever fit into that? are you that person? Like if this study was done on first time moms and showed a benefit for something and you're like you having, you're having your sixth baby, right. is this really a relevant 
set of information to apply to you? Probably not. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So like even in so in saying that, let's talk about the accuracy of ultrasounds. Um sure. Because I know that like even the research on that, I definitely see a lot of conflicting information. Um sure. when I was pregnant with my fifth baby, you know, there was a concern of SGA. So SGA, if anyone doesn't know, is small for gestational age. Um, and I no, it, it was not SGA, it was IUGR, so intrauterine growth restriction. Um, so they were concerned about IUGR with my fifth baby. And I remember just asking the nurse and it's so different when you're pregnant. And even though I'm a birth worker, <laughs> It's like when you're in the middle of it, it's definitely a a unique experience. And I remember just like asking the nurse, knowing like, I'm pretty sure the research on this states like ultrasounds can definitely vary for a lot of different reasons. Um, And I asked the nurse, I'm like, well, how accurate is this ultrasound to determine that my baby's IUGR? And she said 99%. And I just (laughs) said... questionable yeah (laughs) I just remember like thinking a couple of things I'm like okay first of all she's like she made me question what I know for like a hot second and I'm just like wait what Mm -hmm. I don't remember I don't know if that I'm pretty sure that's not different when it's your own right yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and then I relate to that (laughs) yeah and then secondly I was thinking like does she tell all moms this like if moms are asking this question is this what they're telling them so right what is the accuracy of ultrasound? So, I mean, there's a lot, I feel like there is a lot of hot topics and ultrasound is a big one right now. Um, mm-hmm. So, and and I want to kind of preface everything that I'm going to say that like, um, every this is purely educational, right? Like I'm not giving anybody medical advice about what to do. I'm not even qualified for that. And also birth is not a medical event. So people can do with whatever they want. But right. the other thing I wanted to say about it is that I see a lot online of saying like, um, oh, it's plus or minus three pounds or different. I hear like different statistics all the time, never cited. Um, but that's pretty much like, I would say like the most common thing that I hear is it can be plus or minus three pounds. I don't know where that came from. Um, I haven't seen any studies and it's not to say like, I have not read the entire internet, obviously. Like I have two small kids. I don't have that much free time. I wish I did. Um, but realistically, um, from what I see, um, and, and I know Angel has a couple of links that she'll share with you guys in the show notes, but um, it's about, from what I can see, like recently with the most up-to-date um, ultrasound technology, it's about plus or minus 10% is pretty average, right? And it could be a little bit more than that, it could be a little bit less. And there's a lot of things that impact that. And 10% doesn't really seem like a lot until you talk about like on a 10 pound baby, 10% is a pound plus or minus um so that could be like a two pound swing right so they're predicting a baby who's eight pounds and it comes out 10 pounds or they're predicting on the other side a baby who is they're saying that this baby is only four pounds and it's really six and it's not even small right so the that's kind of like a tough thing um when you talk about like how accurate it is and i don't i don't really think that there's like a true way to put like a number on how accurate it is because there's so many different things that influence it, right? You can have the operator, how well they're trained, 
the equipment, how new it is, how calibrated it is. And then you add in other things like the later in gestation, the things that they use. So typically when they're estimated fetal weight, there's different formulas um, from what I found the most common one that they use is called the Haddock, um, specifically the Haddock A. But it calculates fetal weight on based on like a very complicated formula on head circumference, abdominal circumference, and uh, fetal length. So like crown to rump or whatever length. Mm-hmm. And what the thing is, is like it's really difficult to get good measurements when you're late in pregnancy and like the baby's all crammed in there and moving around a lot like it's really difficult to get those good measurements unless you're a really qualified sonographer you have really good equipment and it's like ideal conditions right the mom's not uncomfortable the baby's not uncomfortable moving around all the place so there's a lot of things that kind of play into how accurate it is so i don't think you can put like a number one way or the other but it's important to know it is not it is 100 not 99 percent accurate <laughs> I can say that with certainty. <laughs> that's that's so funny. Um, and yeah, I ultrasounds definitely. So my they they I believe they predicted that my daughter would be in the oh gosh I don't know like w- less than one percentile for I don't you re- I remember you said like it's either head or like femur or something like that. I I can't right. remember exactly which measurement was under one percent. Um, so they were thinking that she was going to be, she is intrauterine growth restricted. Um, and she actually ended up being six pounds, one ounces, which is about normal. <laughs> so right. she, she right. ended up not being as small as they actually thought she was. And she was actually right. a very healthy baby. So, um, on the flip end, I've seen, uh, the, I've seen nine pound, uh, eight pound babies turn out to be nine pound babies. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So the thing and like the thing to keep in mind with that, in my opinion, anyway, is like they not only is it like the accuracy maybe is not the greatest, but the other thing is that and and this is another whole like thing that would probably be a whole nother podcast episode of like how accurate is, uh, you know, estimated delivery, like an estimated due date, like how accurate is that? And that's a lot dependent on like how accurate do you know your conception date? How accurate is your ovulation in that cycle? All these different things. And when did they do your first ultrasound to guesstimate those things? Because really ultrasound for dating is is only really good as far as like guesstimating how, when a due date is based on um, like your first ultrasound, which a lot of people either don't do or it's late. Um, I think that if it has to be less than 20 weeks for it to be considered like accurate, um, but ideally more right in that like eight to 10 week range. And if it's not done then, and they really can't change that number past that 20 week point because it's considered inaccurate, mm-hmm. but you still see that happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other problem is that there are so many other things that play into whether a baby is small for gestational age or whether they're actually growth restricted, but there's genetic factors, there's maternal characteristics, right? Like if you're a smaller person and your partner's a smaller person, you're more likely to have a smaller baby. Right. If you, if your mom had small babies, you're more likely to have smaller babies. If you've had smaller babies in the past, you're more likely to have smaller babies. So it's kind of like, there's a lot of other things that play into this other than just like the baby is small. 
Right. 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 So I'm actually going to like jump a question um, just so that our audience who may not know what SGA or IUGR is, but what is SGA and IUGR and like, what's the difference between the two? Because I know a baby could be IUGR and SGA. Or Correct. they could just yeah. be SCA. So. Correct. Yeah. So IUGR, so intrauterine growth restriction. And the other way that I've seen it referred to just for the sake of completeness and research is FGR. So fetal growth restriction is another way they refer to it. Um, the U.S. definition for this, which it's similar across the world, like they're one of the articles that, that they'll um, will be linked for you guys is um, kind of talking about what the definitions are for the rest of the world as well, but they pretty much are all in the less than, the SGA or small for gestational age is defined as the less than 10th percentile in fetal, estimated fetal weight for gestational age. So it's adjusted for how far along you are in your pregnancy. Um, but by definition, a baby who is small for gestational age does not have what's called a pathologic cause, meaning they don't know what's causing it. The baby is just small, basically. Like small for gestational age is just small for no reason. And then kind of underneath that is IUGR, which intrauterine growth restriction in much the same definition is less than the 10th percentile in fetal weight for gestational age with a pathologic cause. So there is kind of some overlap there. Um, by that definition, they can't be both because one is with a pathologic cause and one is without. But I think a lot of times if a baby ends up truly being growth restricted, they could have been defined as SGA, the last part of pregnancy, and they just didn't know what the cause was until the baby is born. So I think that's a possibility too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I know a lot of the times, at least what I've heard from medical providers, is that usually what they think is the problem um, that causes IUGR is placental issues, mm-hmm. um, which I know can be very difficult to diagnose. Right. If it's an actual placenta issue or if it's not, or, you know, there's just so many factors, like you said, um, right. kind of determining that. Right. Um, so so in, in the literature, it talks about, for at least most of the studies that I read, um, like a 70-30 split. So of the babies who are have low weight, right? So like of these babies who are in the less less than 10th percentile for estimated fetal weight, 70% of them are just small, right? 70% of them are just small for gestational age. The other 30% are IUGR. So they have a reason for being growth restricted. Um, There's a lot of different reasons why that can happen. Um, A lot of them are they can be genetic, they can be environmental, they can be random, right? They can be like random things that just happen, like placental insufficiency sometimes can just happen. Doesn't necessarily have to be like for a reason. Um, A lot of times, like some of the more common ones are not as much anymore, but like smoking was a big one. Um, And then alcohol use or cocaine use is a big one as well. not like big as in common, but like big as in one of the ones that kind of stands out. Mm -hmm. Um, Congenital anomalies. So like a lot of times babies who have, especially like really severe cardiac defects, a lot of times are small for gestational age, which if you think about it makes sense, right? If their body or their heart is not developing well and pumping blood well to their body, then typically they're not going to grow as well. It doesn't 
it's not a far stretch for me to understand how that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty common in twin or multiple pregnancies. Again, like you're splitting the nutrition. So it makes sense to me that babies would be small. Um, but the big one that's like the, I would say like almost the elephant in the room is placental insufficiency, right? (laughs) Which is like this umbrella category of anything that could be wrong with your placenta. And it's also, like you said, really hard to diagnose. So I feel like it's one of those things that just kind of gets thrown in at the last minute of like, they may or may not want to induce you. (laughs) It's kind of hard to diagnose this. Your baby's pretty small. Let's just throw IUGR in there. We're worried about it. Now we got to induce. Yeah. Um, So definitely one of those things that kind of comes up. Um, The way that they most often are able to diagnose from what I read, um, placental insufficiency is through um, umbilical Doppler. So they're doing like a specific ultrasound Mm -hmm. that is like doing a Doppler test on what the blood flow is doing in the um, umbilical from the baby to the placenta. Um, and through assessing that, they can kind of determine like, is there any issues with blood flow? And there are certain patterns, which I'm not going to get into. Obviously, I don't know it that well anyway, but um, there are certain patterns in there that they can look for that say one thing or the other as far as like, is it concerning? Um, is it typical for IUGR? Um, is the baby having trouble getting nutrients? Because there's different things that kind of shut down uh, once that starts happening. Right. I've I've also seen uh, nutrition can the mom's yeah. nutrition can sometimes impact yeah. both placenta and yeah. fetal growth. Um, it's not as common from what I read in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really common, like in the rest of the the world, especially where there is like um, big time nutritional challenges. Um, when it, especially when it comes to pregnancy, obviously. Um, but not as common in the United States, unless we're talking about people who have like eating disorders, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but I mean, there's there's that one of the articles in there that that I um, have is it talks about all different kinds of things, like from smoking to like different um, genetic anomalies, mm-hmm. like trisomies and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So there's a lot of different causes. Um, some of it is just. Um, some of it, some of it is just genetic, right? right? Like, like I was saying, like you, if you, if your baby was IUGR, your fifth baby, obviously she wasn't, but if she was um, IUGR, you're more likely to have IUGR in a, in another pregnancy. If you have siblings or parents who had an IUGR baby, you're more likely to have an IUGR baby. So there's definitely like some kind of a genetic link there as okay. well. Wow. That's so interesting. And you know, SGA, like a, a lot of my babies are small, but I'm also a 110 by foot three right. <laughs> woman. <laughs> right. So, and right. I, I remember that was like one of the things that I brought up when I was doing my consultation with my maternal fetal medicine doctor. I'm just like, well, right. how do you know it's just not, you know, my baby's just not small because I'm small and I've never had a baby over like six pounds, 12 ounces. Right. So like, and you know, they're just like, well, it's, it was more like a just in case kind of scenario. Right. Which is what a lot of this ends up being, which, um, you know, that's, that's an entirely different issue of like how the medical model looks at everything as though, you know, we're, we're just going to do anything we can to protect our medical license and protect you from suing us versus we want to do what's truly best for you and your baby to have the best possible outcome and do the least possible harm. Right. So 
separate issue, but still absolutely plays into when they're making medical decisions, how, how they offer that to you for sure. So do you ultrasounds actually improve the outcome, these outcomes for these babies that may be SGA or IUGR? So I didn't find a lot of good information about specifically SGA and IUGR for this. Mm-hmm. In general, um, ultrasound does not improve outcomes as far as preventing perinatal death. So preventing um, fetal demise or things like that. Um, There are some papers that kind of talk about that it can improve um, outcomes as far as like severe issues with delivery. I do think that um, in this specific case, I don't think that ultrasound is the end-all be-all. So it's really difficult for them to say whether or not ultrasound improves the outcomes because really in this application, ultrasound is just a screening tool. It's not the definitive diagnosis. So in like reality, if you're never going to have an ultrasound regardless of anything, then that would probably be a true, like if you had a pool of people who were never going to get an ultrasound and you were able to determine from that pool how many of them had IUGR babies or had a late fetal demise from a growth restriction, that would be like the true pool. But like realistically, you're not going to find enough people to do a study on and there's no financial benefit for whoever's going to do it. So (laughs) like realistically, you're not going to find that information. And then on top of that, um, again, like I said, it's just one piece in a puzzle of determining a diagnosis. So I don't know that there's like really true data to say like, does it improve outcomes or not for this application? Right. That's so interesting that you said like it is a screening tool um, because there's definitely a difference between a screening tool and a diagnostics tool. And right. I I am not aware if they are able to really diagnose it except by would you consider just looking at the placenta blood flow as a diagnostic tool or would you still kind of consider that like screening? I don't know like def- definition wise if they consider it like a definitive if they consider it like a definitive diagnosis, I want to say that, that you can only diagnose it after the baby's born. Like this is not right. 100% is not my specialty. So I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. I want to say that they um, basically can have like a, sh- a strong enough judgment from that to say whether or not they would recommend right. for the del- early delivery or not. Okay. Um, and, and whether that's a C-section or a, um induction like you know is kind of gray as well to be honest (laughs) but um but they may be able to tell enough to where they can make like a decent recommendation but i don't think diagnostic wise until like they inspect the placenta after birth like that they and they get a true fetal weight right because that's still an estimate Mm -hmm. um until the baby is born right 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 yeah and um, so for anyone that doesn't really know that the the story of my fifth baby, um, what ended up happening, I think I was probably like 34, 35 weeks when they're like, we believe that your baby is suspected IUGR. And I just had, you know, your birth worker, obviously we're like the worst patients <laughs> probably because I'm just, I had all these questions and I'm just like, okay, well, how do you know? And how accurate is this? And, you know, um, just my maternal fetal medicine doctor was great and very open to answering my questions and things like that. Um, and very 
open to whatever decision that I made, but they eventually said that either I should do a repeat C-section because she would have been my second vaginal birth after two C-sections or to go ahead and do an induction at 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable. And this is where I hope my audience and anyone who's a mom and planning on having another baby or is currently pregnant, my gut instinct, intuition, you know, uh, my nudge by God, whatever you want to call it, told me that this is not a good idea. (laughs) Right. And so I actually decided not to move forward with an induction. And I um, asked if we could do a biophysical profile every week um, to make sure that my baby was doing fine. And she did. She, She passed her biophysical profiles eight by eight every single week. She did really good. Um, and, uh, eventually like I went into like early labor, um, and I was able to, you know, have my daughter in an hour and a half very quickly, Yeah, (laughs) very fast. And she ended up not being, um, uh, IUGR. She was actually just SGA, which is small for gestational age. So she was six pounds, one ounce. Um, so in my instance, I took everything that they told me and, looked at what they had told me and went with my gut instinct and everything ended up being okay. So, um, and saying that, you know, how you kind of mentioned like how often IUGR is misdiagnosed. You said 730. Um, and honestly, I, I am interested to see whether an induction or a C-section is better for IUGR. I know, IUDR. I know I was offered both. And if I personally wanted to go either route, I probably would have went induction. But, you know, are there any risks for this, especially when we have that 70-30, you know? So the 70-30 is actually talking about of the babies who are just small in general, mm-hmm. 70% of them are just small for gestational age. That's not like um, babies who are actually diagnosed as IUGR okay. that are misdiagnosed. So um, the And it's really, again, like this is, it's so tough to find this data as like misdiagnosed because for it to be considered a misdiagnosis, it has to be basically like a physician or midwife tattling on themselves to say, I misdiagnosed this. And like, you can only imagine what the accuracy of that is, right? Like not very many people are going to go and say like, yep, you're right. I misdiagnosed that. Absolutely. (laughs) And admit that to somebody, especially when it resulted in an induction with its own risks or a C-section with many of its own risks, right? So like, they're not usually going to say like, oh yeah, that was a misdiagnosis, like flat out. They're not going to admit that. Um, the, um, one thing that I did see said that up to 50% of cases are misdiagnosis. Um, and that was probably like the only, the only thing that I could find. And that was usually only when they are measuring, um, they're only doing like a physical exam of the mom. So like they're only doing a fundal height. They're not going and following up that with an ultrasound or following that up with a whatever, because, I've seen a lot of, or I've heard a lot of people just from my own experience who people that had like babies who were measuring small by, and I'm putting like air quotes, um, babies who are measuring small by uh, fundal heights, serial fundal heights. And that's usually the thing that they recommend for this is to just measure, measuring fundal heights. And like, if that falls lower than three centimeters, I believe, 
below what's expected for that week of gestation is when it's kind of like a red flag, right? So, um, but the thing is, is that if you're trending small your whole pregnancy, it doesn't just all of a sudden become a concern. It really only becomes a concern when it's you're trending normal, you're trending normal, you're trending normal, and then you drop off. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. it, it, are you not following the curve, right? And basically, like the baby is at that point like slowing down or stopping growing. So that is where it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as like I I can kind of understand, like you said, like why they would misdiagnose because on the flip side of it, and like I found a. <laughs> malpractice law firm website that was specifically talking about this, like um, an IUGR diagnosis. And all they talked about on their entire website was the opposite problem, mm -hmm. right? The physician missed the diagnosis and how serious it is. And, you know, in general, our legal system in the United States tends to um, err on the side of caution when it comes to diagnosing versus not diagnosing, like they would rather, like nine times out of 10, if the possibility is that a C-section can save a baby, they will err on the side of the doctor should have done the C-section versus the opposite. Um, and that's just kind of how they view it, which is what this malpractice website that I was looking at talks about was kind of interesting. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that is so interesting. That just... <laughs> I just, I don't even, I have no words for that. Just, but you're right. I feel, I also can understand too. Like IUGR does have its risk. When a baby is actually IUGR, um, these are very, very sick babies. So uh, there's definitely something that right. like you do want to catch. Um, but it's, it's also just, just so hard to diagnose. And then, you know, most of the recommendations are if we're doing an induction or C-section, it's at 37 weeks. Um, and I know one of my questions was, okay, well, if we have my baby at 37 weeks, how do we know that my baby is small because of IUGR or just because we delivered my baby so early? Right. Um, right. And that's where they can look at like that, um, chart that talks about like the percentile chart for gestational age to do it comparative to what your estimated gestational age or your estimated versus your estimated delivery date is important. Um, versus just saying like the baby's just small. Like, of course it's small for a full-term baby because it's not full-term. So looking at it right. at that chart for gestational age is important. But then the other thing is, is like, um, I, I guess, um, and I kind of, I wanted to talk briefly about two, two podcast episodes actually that I listened to kind of in preparation for this topic. And one was, um, episode 183 of the Down to Birth podcast, and um, you can write that for them so that they can go listen, which was with um, Dr. Rachel Reed, who's awesome. Um, and she talks a lot about that the only real way to, to diagnose um, IUGR is to uh, really assess placental insufficiency, right? Doesn't have really anything to do with fetal weight, although these babies do tend to be lower, right? You can have placental insufficiency in a big baby. It's just unlikely because most of the time, if the baby is big, the placenta is supplying it with enough food and enough blood flow to be big and healthy. Um, <clears throat> but she also talks about how, um, and this is more in, and this episode prompted me to go listen to her book. So she has a book um, called The Case for Induction. Um, and she talks about IUGR in that book where she says, 
basically like if babies are truly growth restricted and they truly they identify issues with um, Doppler blood flow the baby is measuring small so like the clinical picture is showing you the biophysical profile is not good um, that a lot of times these babies don't deal well with induction so in general for them uh, a planned c-section might be a better option if they are at um, obviously the age of, of viability or as close to it as possible like that 37 week where they can usually breathe on their own although if they're igr they may have issues with that depending on how long it's been going on mm -hmm. um so that was like a really good resource if people want to learn more about it and then um i went way back in the archives of birthing instincts <laughs> to episode 199 of birthing instincts with dr sue like when he was um before he I, I want to say it's like before he brought, brought his co-host on full time, but he talks a lot in that episode about um, kind of, again, looking at like the full clinical picture, right? Like if the biophysical profile is normal, the fetal environment is normal, the fluid is good, um, there's the Doppler is good, the fundal heights are the only thing that's low or the ultrasound is showing the fetal weight to be low and that's the only problem, then waiting is probably the best option depending obviously like giving them the full informed consent that like it's really tough to diagnosis but um but that if there's any like evidence that the placenta is compromised that that it's probably best to deliver the baby sooner rather than later right because things can kind of go downhill pretty quickly if the if there's issues with the placenta because that's the only way they get anything food oxygen Mm -hmm. etc right wow thank you for those resources and yeah that'll be in the show notes for anyone who is interested but um yeah thank you for bringing that up and how they the, just the process of diagnosing IUDR, IUDR and I just kind of listened to you I realized that they didn't even do <laughs> the full you know diagnoses um uh, for me personally but you know it's really important to know just you know that process and um how to really weigh your options uh, in in those instances because again if these babies really are iudr you definitely want to you know take action to um uh, for the best outcome so um and and so if the baby you kind of mentioned this a little bit but if the baby is measuring fine in previous ultrasounds um why how how does it become possible for baby to become suddenly iudr I think this has a lot to do with like the cases that we're talking about where it has to do with placental insufficiency, which that can kind of come up at any time, right? And if it's early enough, it's not necessarily something that you're watching for, and then it becomes a loss or a early stillbirth or however you want to label that. And we may not ever even look into it if the if if you're not going to do pathology for it, you would just have a miscarriage of some sort and we may not really know why. Um, however, if you're talking about like these more common cases where it tends to be like late, right, like 32 weeks and on, that it kind of, I think where what happens is there becomes an issue with the placenta of some kind. And again, like most of the information I found on this is like very nebulous, right? Like there's not a lot of like defining, like this is exactly what's happening. And part of it is because like, we don't really know what's going on in there. Like, it's not like we put, probes and monitors in there to like look and see like oh and we can't do it outside of a woman right that's part of what makes this process so magic no, they can't replicate it um so there's not like a 
definitive like this is exactly what happens unfortunately um but i think that it has to do with like a developing placental insufficiency which can be an infarct or like clots or <clears throat> really serious calcifications especially like early earlier like before 36 37 weeks because after that calcifications tend to be kind of normal um but but anything that could kind of interfere with that placental blood flow to the baby is what can kind of happen to make IUGR become an issue, especially later in pregnancy. So that's where you would start to see like maybe those fundal heights drop off or start kind of like we say like falling off the curve, right? So like one week it's you're you're continuously adding like one centimeter per week and then like one week you're the same. And then the next week you're below where you should be and it's like just not getting any it's kind of like falling off of the curve is kind of the issue right if you're small and you're small the whole time and you continue to be small that's not a problem right it's when you're normal 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 and then fall off the curve later in pregnancy right okay awesome and so i'm sure there are moms that are wondering like okay well what can i do to avoid having an SDA and IUGR, um, obviously you've mentioned that some of this is genetic. <laughs> right, yeah, so I mean, a lot of it is, a lot of these are genetic cases where you're at an increased risk if you, like I said, have had either family members, especially your mother or a sister, or if you personally have had babies who have IUGR, you're obviously at an increased risk of that happening. Um, I don't know if they really know why that is, but it just tends, it tends to be the case, from at least from what I read. Um, there are some things that you can do to like address some of the other causes. So like things that a lot of times, um, ones that are not due to like just placental insufficiency can also be due to like different chronic health conditions, things like type one diabetes, chronic hypertension, um, a lot of autoimmune diseases like lupus or clotting disorders, um, <clears throat> for various reasons, obviously. Um, but really like those things, it's going to be like addressing the underlying cause. So if you know you're a type one diabetic, you're at an increased risk for that. Make sure obviously that you're controlling your glucoses well throughout pregnancy. And, the, and it's actually the opposite concern of type two diabetes, right? With type one diabetics, we worry about their glucose being too low and the baby not getting enough glucose, so not being able to grow. And then, um, obviously like monitoring and treating with medications hypertension is another reason like chronic hypertension or pregnancy induced hypertension um, a lot of times can be an issue with this so making sure that medications are appropriate um, if needed uh, addressing diet like that's a big thing and and then diet nutrition regardless obviously right like making sure you're getting sufficient calories in quality quality as much as you can obviously diet um, stopping smoking. If you're pregnant and smoking, please stop. <laughs> um, that should be like number one rule. <laughs> if you're abusing illicit drugs and, and pregnant, stop. Is <laughs> like yeah. a good way to prevent IUGR. Seems obvious, but maybe not. Um, and, and like knowing your family history, I think that's a big part of it too, right? So like knowing if, um, you know, certain uh, anomalies, especially like cardiac defects or different things like that. And a lot of them are random, right? Like you can't do anything about those. And you a lot of times can't do anything about if it's your first baby and you don't have siblings or you don't know your mom's pregnancy history or you're an only child, like you might not have a lot of that information. But as much as you can, getting access to 
your family history, learning about, you know, your mother's pregnancies or your sister's pregnancies, or even like your grandmother's pregnancies is like an infinite wealth of information if you're able to access it. Like I know not everybody can or not everybody wants to have those conversations, but um, it's a lot of good information there that, that can be helpful, not just for this, but for a lot of things too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, this this has been super, super informational and educational. Um, I know I have learned a lot and I'm sure everyone in here listening has learned a lot. We've touched on a lot of subjects here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is there anything else that you would like to add to all of this? Yeah, I guess um, really just to kind of wrap up, I mean, and and this is uh, like we talked about, like this was just a random topic. This isn't anything that like I'm a expert on or anything like that. Like I just, I, I really wanted, um, Angel, I wanted you to pick like a kind of a random topic that I didn't know a lot about to kind of prove the point that, you know, anybody can go out there and find information. Um, knowledge truly is power, like being able to take the time and look at information that's out there, whether that's you look at a study and you say, this is absolute garbage. I can't believe my physician is telling me that this is applicable to me or whether you're out there reading 47 blog posts and kind of taking your own <laughs> study from that. It doesn't matter. Like whatever information, there's no such thing as, as bad information, right? It's all just information and you do with it what you need to. Um, but in the end, like you're the one who's responsible for what's going on in your body especially during your pregnancy, right? So you have to determine how that information applies to you and if it's relevant and how you want to use it as far as making decisions. Um, and and I know you kind of said it already, but just to reemphasize, like always trust your own intuition above everything else, right? So find all the information, learn as much as you can, and then like really what is your gut telling you? Because that overrides it, it wouldn't matter if you read a hundred studies, if your gut's telling you, you need to do something, then that's probably what you need to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, and Kylie always says full body. Yes. Or full body. No. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. If it's not a full body, yes, it's a full body. No, for exactly. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, and mother's intuitions, uh, oh gosh, they're so strong. Um, yep. and in my instance, actually in a lot of my pregnancies, that intuition has, you know, proved bright and um, has gotten me really good outcomes. And so if you're, Absolutely. if you're hearing this, or if your doctor is bringing this up, and you've asked all the questions, you've gotten all the information and everything in you is telling you, go along with the C-section, you know, or if it's saying, maybe we should try something different, like go along with that, trust that. Um, and, you, you know, you'll know that you've tried, you know, gotten everything that you need to do. And, um, done everything that you you can um, to do, you know, you know, to uh, deal with this diagnosis and um, to make the best decision for you and your baby. So, yeah, yeah. Amanda, it's oh gosh, it's so much fun talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's been it's been fun for me as well. So I I've really enjoyed it, and hopefully um, everybody learned something and you guys get some good feedback from this. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem. And where can we find you online? Sure. So um, for right now, I am almost exclusively on Instagram at buildyourbirth. So I'm at buildyourbirth. And then I will soon, probably, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, and if not, shortly after that, we'll have a website at letsbuildyourbirth.com. 
awesome. And it's been a pleasure having you again, Amanda. Um, and I hope hope probably we'll bring you on again because it is so well. <laughs> I, I won't mind it. I'll I'll be I'll be a returning guest. That's totally fine. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Well um guys all this information all the resources uh that we have mentioned in this podcast are gonna be in the show notes you guys will find the links to all of that. Um she's created an amazing uh, document that I'll also put in the show notes so that you guys can have access to that and refer to it and all the research links and things like that. So that will be at your disposal to look at. Um, In the meantime, thanks for joining me on the Birth Cafe podcast, and I hope you guys have an amazing day. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode. But remember, our journey together is far from its conclusion. Ensure you tap that notification bell to stay in the loop about upcoming episodes. Don't forget the valuable resources waiting for you in the podcast description. Also, do you love this podcast? Show your love by leaving a stellar five-star review, spreading the word across your social circles, or even becoming a listener supporter, contributing financially to sustain this podcast's existence. If a specific topic tickles your fancy or you aspire to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to submit your ideas via the link in the podcast description. And to all you incredible women who are expecting or planning to conceive, I'm well aware that fears around childbirth can be overwhelming. From concerns about hospital procedures to coping mechanisms during labor, I've got your back. What's even better is that you can now access your free guide on mastering five techniques to conquer the fear of birth. As a bonus, discover a collection of mindfulness tools curated to quell anxiety and fear during pregnancy and childbirth. The guide's link awaits you in the podcast description. Live long, loud, and in prosperity, dear members of the Rebel Birth crew. Until we cross paths again, thrive unapologetically.